0: It's the California Wine Country Podcast with Steve Jackson and Dan Berger. We taste, we laugh, we learn. Well, Dan Berger and Harry and I are producing a new documentary called The Dan Berger Story. (laughs) It's fascinating stuff. And (laughs) we started last week, and let me just do a quick rundown without getting into details here, but... He's been writing for newspapers and doing all sorts of stuff for all these years. He earned a B.A. in journalism at Cal State L.A., then got hired by the Associated Press as a reporter and worked for them for quite a while. He covered a fatal Pan Am airplane crash in American Samoa in the jungle there. He covered the search for Patty Hearst in San Francisco for A.P., and then about 1976, he began writing about wine as a hobby, and now we know he continues all these years to write about wine and talk about wine here every Wednesday in the 5 o'clock hour in California wine country. Dan, always a pleasure. And for me. Where do we pick it up? I'm um, not sure. I'm looking at all this stuff.
1: We just talked of him about him writing a basketball book, a book on basketball.
2: Oh, right, the book on basketball. Yeah, well... I had a good relationship with Pete Newell, the basketball coach at Cal. Yeah. And he was then the general manager for the L.A. Lakers, and I was covering the National Basketball Association for Associated Press. So when Doubleday, the publisher, ran into a buzzsaw with their original writer of the basketball book, they called me on the phone and said, We've got three weeks. Can you do a book? And I said, No problem. (laughs) I called Pete on the phone, and Pete and I got together every day for about two weeks and wrote the book.
0: In 1976, it was published by Doubleday. It's called Basketball: The Sports Playbook. Yeah, sold out a few years ago. <laughs> it's not available. I got a copy. <laughs>
2: is, is it a collectible nowadays? No, it's, it's another book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you
1: also wrote for the NFL.
2: I wrote for the National Football League for one year. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Actually, that was a lot of fun. I wish I'd stayed, but then. Things happened, and I, what does one write for the National Football? This games? was for their Pro Magazine. P R O with an exclamation point, and Pro Magazine was the outside of the program that you buy in the stadium, and the inside part was written by the local teams. So the outside part was in every stadium in the United States, and then the inside part was the local copy. And I wrote all the outside copy along with a team of other people. They were fabulous folks. They were really great writers. And real talent there. And I, I enjoyed it a lot. I had an office overlooking Sunset, uh, uh, Wilshire Boulevard, in Westwood. Nice. <laughs> it was really nice. Now, in 76,
0: I believe, you uh, began your interest in wines.
2: Yeah, that was a really kind of a strange story. I was actually in, in uh, Eugene, Oregon, covering the Olympic track and field team. The, they, were, they were picking the U.S. team for the track and field uh, uh, performance at the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And I got bored to tears with uh, steak and potatoes every night. At the, the only place that was open late after these events were all over with was a steakhouse. And after about seven days of steak and potatoes, I said, to hell with that. So we got out and we went to a Hotel Eugene was open late one Saturday night. And I ordered some wine and t- turned out the bottle was corked. And I complained about it to the waiter, and the guy said, You got a career. And so I, that's where I kind of sh- shifted my career. Because
1: he didn't think most people would recognize that the wine was corked.
2: He had no idea that there was anybody in a room who knew something about wine. I didn't know anything about wine at the time. But but you quickly, knew
0: it was corked. I knew it was corked. Quickly, explain what a corked wine is. It's moldy. Is. We've, it we've dealt with it
2: on this show yeah, before. Yeah, it smells like an uh, old dish rag, a, a wet old dish rag for about three days old. And. And the smell is moldy, and it was evident to me that this guy was really impressed. He says, you impressed me. (laughs) So I okay, fine, whatever. So he says, you got a career in in wine. And I said, no, as if, right? (laughs) It took me about, what, 30 more years before I could figure out that I was doing the right thing. (laughs) In
0: 79, you joined the San Diego Union as sports columnist, and at that time, you wrote two wine columns per week. Now that's interesting. I was
2: writing two wine columns a week until I they asked me to write a third, so I write three wine columns a week. I did my favorite uh, column as uh, my sport. My favorite sports column during that period was called Airing It Out, and it was the first uh, sports column dedicated to sports on television. And it was uh, we started that in nineteen seventy nine, late in seventy nine, and it was all about sports on TV. And it was absolutely one of the most hilarious things I ever did because they allowed me to just do whatever writing I wanted to do. And it was some of the funniest stuff. I had all these bloopers, (laughs) a lot of fun writing.
0: And then, uh, beginning around 1980, you wrote three wine columns per week. And continued with your, your sports columns. Right. In 82, you founded the Riverside International Wine Competition, and mm-hmm. you're so invi- involved in wine competitions. Since Riverside
2: then. International Wine Competition, that's correct. Or I start- Rywick. Rywick. Yes. <laughs> R-I-W-C. Right, well, we started that because uh, I was getting a little tired of all the numbers that were being put on wine. Everybody said, oh, this is a, this is a 79, this is an 84, and this is a 91. And I said, what does that mean? Uh, gold medals mean more. Uh, They have much more validity because it's a judgment of a panel of people, not just one individual. So we started the competition in uh, 82, and by about 88, uh, the world was getting the word uh, that it was really nice to have a a judging panel to evaluate. Right. So that was fun. Uh, You joined in
0: 83 the financial section of the San Diego Union. As high-technology editor. Now, see, this just. This he is why we have to continue this documentary. Writing
1: <laughs> sports columns, and then he starts writing wine columns, and then he's doing both at the same time. How do you go into high-technology,
2: then? Well, the editor of the business section, a guy by the name of Don Botter, who is probably my the best editor I ever had in my life, and Don uh, pleaded with the managing editor to switch me over to high-tech, and he said, you were a math major in college, weren't you? I said, yeah. He says, you can do high tech. I said, well, well, sure. Why not? So, and I got my degree in journalism, and and journalism is pretty. I mean, it doesn't make any difference what subject you're covering. Could be anything. Could be food. It could be, you know, sewing. Whatever. There's always a good journalistic angle. You did not
0: ever write a sewing column. No, thank goodness. (laughs) Thank you. <laughs> Maybe coming up. You never
1: know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Keep going.
2: Well, I'm, I'm thrilled with uh, being in journalism. That To me, that's the whole thing. Journalism is everything.
1: So what did you write about for this high-tech column? What was high-tech back then? In
2: 1983, Sorrento Valley was Silicon Valley South in San Diego County. There were all these high-tech companies de- developing new kinds of technology. There was SPI, Software Products International, and there were lots of high-tech companies developing various technologies that didn't even exist. So uh, cell-, cell phone technology, for example, actually was born in a in a certain way in San Diego County. So we ended up with a real high-tech community in San Diego based around the fact that they were Connected to University of California, San Diego, UCSD, which was a very high powered campus for technology, so I was constantly on the road interviewing interv- uh, uh, presidents and uh, technology people and I did a story on infrasonics, which was a company that specialized in making infant uh, ventilators and can you believe when when children were, were infants were born that were less than a pound? The only ventilators at the time were adult ventilators, and these kids were dying because the, the amount of air being injected into their lungs was too strong. So this one guy, Jim Pitchens, I think his name was, who invented this gadget that was computer-based, it analyzed the need of the, of the baby for the amount of oxygen needed, and he, he created this thing, and he beat everybody in the world at, at inventing this gadget eventually wow. it was the technology was stolen by another country and he got into a lawsuit and i ended up covering the lawsuit fascinating stuff
1: i gotta ask you you're writing columns sports columns you're writing wine columns were there any t- folks coming up to you and say what is this wine guy doing covering sports or what is this sports guy doing covering wine were there folks that yeah asked those actually questions?
2: funny he should mention that harry because it happened all the time And the question was, what do you know about wine when you're doing high tech? Or what do you know about sports when you're doing, you know, wine and so forth? And the whole idea came back to me as a a very simple answer. It's all journalism. If you know journalism, you can cover it all. You just have to be intelligent enough to do it. Expand on that a little bit. When you say, if you know journalism journalism calls for analysis you can't just write a story based on one single source you've got to look into all the aspects of it you have to ask yourself questions that nobody even wants to ask let alone answer so when you finally get into the weeds on this stuff then you finally realize there's a lot more here than meets the eye and you have a a good journalist is going to look at every single angle before they ever put a single word on paper In 1985, Dan Berger began judging
0: wine competitions internationally, Europe, Australia, and elsewhere. Talk a bit about that.
2: Well, 1990, um, my first wine competition ever was 1981, and it was the Sonoma County Harvest Fair. And that it was Rich Thomas's event, and it was a fabulous event, and Rich was my real mentor there. And then uh, years went by, and I judged with Andrei Chelychev, and I judged with uh, Gary Farrell, and I, I judged with a whole bunch of folks. But during that entire period, I was learning that wine was a lot more complicated than I had thought. It wasn't just what was in the glass. It was also what was in the winery and what was in the technology. So as time went by, I learned lo- more and more and more about it. In 1990, I, I was invited to judge... The OIV competition in Europe, the European event, and it was in OIV. OIV—it's a French term which means uh, international uh, wine competition okay. Okay. in Europe. You know, it's a French thing. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, the O stands for enology, which uh, tells you something. Okay. Uh, but I went to Yugoslavia uh, for that competition in 1990, and we f- and we flew in, and I could see the bombs dropping. It was the the war that eventually created Slovenia out of Yugoslavia. And uh, when we got into the airport at Zagreb, (laughs) it was empty. There wasn't anybody there, including the guy who was supposed to rent us a rental car. So we uh, hired a cab to take us north, about 70 miles north. And there's bombs dropping. Bombs dropping. I hope
1: you gave him a good tip.
2: We certainly did. (laughs) We gave him a huge tip. (laughs) He was happy to get out of town. There was no bombs dropping in Ljubljana.
0: (laughs) Wow. Wow. We're continuing with our great friend, longtime Drive Hall of Famer, and longtime co host of California Wine Country on Wednesdays, the great Dan Berger. What a story. Now, you, as I mentioned earlier, be- began judging wine competitions in Europe, Australia, and
2: everywhere else. And you've been to Australia how many times? 23. 23 times. Yeah. I've judged 15 wine competitions down there, and the other eight times it was just for interviews. And I thought you were going to say fun. fun. What well, was fun? Yeah, okay. Australia. I love the Australians. It's such oh. a great sense of humor, and I love Australian rules football. Oh. That's where they—they
1: uh, they just beat the crap out of each other. Well, it's they? not
0: quite
2: as bad as rugby.
0: Okay, okay, all right, <laughs> all right. Now you. Uh Love Australia, but even more, you love New Zealand, and you've been there Um, many times. Nine
2: times to New Zealand. I'll tell you, if I had another opportunity to go to New Zealand, like tomorrow, I'd be on a plane. I think New Zealand is one of the greatest countries in the world, Um, not only socially, but also... See, the difference between Australians and New Zealanders is is really significant. And Osmo, I love the Australians, and I love the New Zealanders, but for whole different reasons. Really different reasons. And New Zealand is, is a country that has some of the most incredible beauty I have ever been among in my life. I mean, some of the great little cities and towns and backwaters. It's just – it's and there's nobody there. <laughs> it's like four million people total.
1: But is it as beautiful as San Diego? Because you've written a book about San Diego.
2: I was, I, <laughs> I got so tired of San Diego when I was – I was there for eight years, and I liked it a lot. But, well, I'll tell you what, the population is. Grow, overgrew the place and it's just impossible now. You wrote a book
0: uh, about San Diego called yeah. San Diego, Where Tomorrow Begins.
2: They didn't take the title I originally suggested, which was City with a Mission. <laughs> well, that's
0: better than Where Tomorrow Begins. <laughs> well, I mean, first, that's, yeah, like, that's
2: pretty lame. The publisher didn't care for my title. <laughs> so,
1: how did you come about writing a book about San Diego?
2: Uh, it, uh, I don't know. It's a long story. <laughs> it's a very common story. <laughs> they're all long uh, stories, They're all long stories. What the hell? Um, it was interesting. Uh, a friend of mine who was really uh, very knowledgeable about San Diego said, you know, we need a city book. And I said, well, I can write one. And it was like a throwaway line. And then he says, okay, fine. And he calls me back about two days later. He says, I got you a publisher. Are you ready to write it? And I said, okay, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Uh,
0: Also, in 86, with co-author Rich Hinkle, you published two books on wine, one called An Inside Look at Napa Valley and the other An Inside Look at Sonoma County. Talk about that.
2: Those were uh, interesting projects. They were developed by... Uh, a guy in uh, Belgium, of all places, wow. uh, by the name of uh, Nick or something or other like that, the name of the book company was Atomium Books, and they decided they wanted to do a book on Napa and, Sonoma, and another book on Sonoma. And the reason that they wanted this, these books was they had this fabulous photographer, who a French guy with a great, great eye. And he had taken a whole bunch of wonderful photos, and they had all these incredible photos. And they said, well, we need some text. So they called me on the phone, and they said, would you write these two books? And I said, well, I'd be happy to. The problem is that I don't have the time. You need them out by, like, whatever it was, March 1st. And I said, I don't have the time to do two books. I said, but I, I can bring in my buddy Rich Hinkle, who's a fabulous writer. And I said to him... Would you do the book? And he said, well, we don't have enough time to even do one book, let alone two. And I said, well, let's just apply ourselves. So we worked on it together. And he took half, and I took half, and we both had bylines on both books. And the books are not bad. Are they still available? No, they were sold out. uh, the, The publishing date was 86. By 90, they were all sold out. Maybe they're in the library. I found a couple of copies online about a year ago and bought them. All right. So I need the extra copies. <laughs> also in '86, and this
0: is so bizarre. You were hired to be business editor for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat.
2: Yeah, they call. And and I, uh, business business editor. Yeah. Well, I had been working for the business section of the San Diego Union, and they and uh, they um, managing editor for the newspaper in Sandy in Santa Rosa called me on the phone and said, "Hey, you want to come up and be our business editor?" And I said, well, "I I've been, never done that. He is says, that well, how you first? I moved here in you 86 to just Rosa. to take that position. And the reason that I took the job more than anything else was they said, well, not only will we take your business writing experience, but we'll also take your wine column and we'll give we'll put it in the New York Times syndicate. Yeah. So I, I got the New York Times syndicate out of that, and that was— And you know, that's been
0: back when uh, the Press Democrat was owned by the that's New correct. York Times. That's yeah. correct, yeah. Wow. Uh, Dan, the documentary, will be appearing early in 2024 on Netflix. It's we'll going to be a posted. Ken Burns documentary. Yes, right. yes. and <laughs> Peter Coyote, P- I, Coyote. Peter Coyote narrating. narrating it. There yes. uh, God, man. This is so cool. Uh, now, in 89, you were hired uh, to become the full-time
2: wine columnist for the Los Angeles Times. Now, that's heavy duty. Well, my... Writing of, of the wine column was never about what's in the glass. It's always about topics that really illustrate what wine is supposed to be. Whether it's correct or incorrect is up to the winemaking teams and the people who grow the grapes. So my job was to analyze scientifically what was in the bottle, what was in the glass, and why it got there, how it got there, and that sort of thing. And the LA Times wanted more analysis. And that's what I gave him. I gave him plenty of analysis. A lot of the work that I did included some uh, work out of, uh, on the, uh, the Bordeaux scene, starting with red wines in Bordeaux, starting in 1945. And I did a statistical analysis of those wines based solely on the statistics, not about what they tasted like. And the statistics were just fascinating. It's a complicated story, which, as you can imagine. It'll all be in the new documentary
0: on Netflix beginning next year, Dan, the documentary. Ken Burns, Dan. (laughs) And Peter Coyote will narrate it, yes. Now,
1: he scribbled it. Now, he came in last week when we started this, folks, and he brought us a 12-page outline of things that he's done in his life. And then he brought it in today. He said, I need to add some things. So 1990 is handwritten. On Steve's form,
2: yeah, that was my L- Ljubljana experience, the, the Yugoslavia the thing. We talked thing, about that, yeah. yeah. And then the, the other parts of this, the, the judging competitions. Uh, what I didn't put down at all was that I'm working on a new system of valuation of wine, uh, working with a mathematician out of Oregon. There and comes I, the statistics again. Yeah, here comes statistics, and this is this guy is brilliant. He is absolutely. He's got a PhD in mathematics, and he's helping me. Uh, do the the statistical analysis of uh, wine evaluation all right in 96 you left the la times and you did
0: a self-published wine newsletter called dan berger's vintage
2: experiences you said that well and that was just about wine right that's about wine okay. and food and, oh, and food. some other topics as well. We 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 published it weekly for about 22 years, and now it's monthly. Uh, it's still going. It's just that uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to produce it with all the other stuff that's going on. But uh, the food stuff that was in there was sort of uh, material that had been published, for example, by Harold McGee in the New York Times and it had never been widely disseminated. If you read the New York Times you get it but you have to read Harold McGee in the food section of the New York Times and people typically don't buy the New York Times for food so i would anal- analyze they buy it his for stuff. a crossword puzzle unless right? they need to eat it <laughs> yeah. or yeah. wrap food in the paper <laughs> yeah i like to say some newspapers are more absorbent than others <laughs> you in, in
0: 98 began writing articles for decanter magazine out of london yeah and various beverage trade magazines
2: I was a uh, very, very big in the uh, beverage trade magazine business for a long time because most of the scientific analysis of wine has been done using very large categories, and I was doing micro-category analysis. And the, most of that was uh, hand-to-mouth. It was not scientific. It was mostly analysis done by interviewing people. So I'll, I would call people all over the United States and talk to them and, and get uh, trends. And those trends would show up in Decanter magazine. And they did they did pretty good job with that because they really gave – for example, one of the things that they did, they asked me to do a story some years ago about the French influence in California winemaking. And it was a dramatically good story. I didn't, it was not my idea. It was their idea. But once I got done with the story, I realized what a monumental piece it was. So just to be clear,
1: Decanter Magazine didn't just cover decanters, because I don't think you can get many issues
2: out of that. <laughs> no, they covered everything about wine. Okay. <laughs> that was funny, Well, Harry. you think of a lot of ma-
1: magazines specialize these days. I would imagine there would actually be a decanter magazine that only covered decanters.
2: Probably someday there will be.
0: <laughs> In 2010, Dan Berger published North American Wine Roots. And that was for Reader's Digest publications. Yeah,
2: Reader's Digest called and asked. Was it a very short article? No, it was a big, giant book. Um, Oh, a book. It was an entire look in the entire United States and Canada. And I got my co-author, did the Canadian section, I did the American section. The American section included uh, people from Michigan, Minnesota. I mean, we had wine country areas that you wouldn't. Even no war wine country areas, I went to Colorado to do the Colorado section myself. I went to Utah to do that, I went to Texas to do that. so after a while, I was flying all over the United States doing my own regional coverage.
1: What was the most off the beaten path wine route that you traveled
2: Michigan was unquestionably the most interesting when I visited right Michi- on well, <laughs> it was fascinating. These people are so dedicated it's amazing and they're doing some great oh wine yes yeah. Days. yeah. I just ordered a case of Michigan wine two days ago. We've talked about this
0: before, yeah. Michigan being my home state. Yeah. Yeah, and they've really gotten it together, and you wouldn't think, you know, you think Michigan wine? Well, there's no. a
2: winemaker up there by the name of Brian Ulbrich who makes a wine under the brand name Left Foot Charlie, and everything he does is brilliant. Everything. I've seen the name, and I've well, seen Well, next week I'll bring in a bottle of Left Foot Charlie wine. you do. You'll taste it.
0: You were in 2010 inducted into the uh, New York Hall of Fame, the Wine Media Guild. What's that all?
2: Wine about? Media Guild has been in business for a long, long time, and um, they have uh, sort of a Hall of Fame of wine columnists and wine uh, key wine people in the in the world of wine. And the in, in 2010, they called me on the phone and said, "Would you be willing to come out here and?" accept an award will put you in the hall of fame and i said well i don't i said i i, I don't live in new york He's, they said well we don't we we don't discriminate against people just because they happen to live in california so so i flew out and they gave me the award and the other person inducted on the same day as me was uh michael Broadbent uh from oh. london yeah. So, and I, I also not a citizen. Of also New York. not a not a citizen of the U.S. <laughs> that was really really a lot of fun because uh, I got to meet a, a whole bunch of people that I'd read about and heard about but never had met. So it was nice. It
0: is an amazing story. We started it last week, the Dan <laughs> Berger story, and coming out in twenty twenty four, Dan <laughs> the documentary. <laughs> I'm serious. You can gotta catch get it on my, Netflix. This gotta, is just great stuff,
2: man. I like my. Uh, I have to put on a tie. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> it's 2023. That's right. Nobody okay. cares. Nobody anymore. cares about ties, especially on the
1: radio. Harry, well, are we up to 2022? I guess we are up to
2: 2022. Is there anything on the calendar there? There
1: is. Oh. You, perverse, you produced <laughs> a commercial wine for the first time. Oh, good gracious! Yeah, yeah and well, you're
2: still doing that, right? Yeah. Well, it just got bottled two days ago. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's a Riesling and it's a dry Riesling, but there's a philosophy behind this. Where uh, and the reason for the wine essentially is that I have been told for the last thirty years that it can't be done, and whenever anybody says it can't be done, I'm always ready to challenge that. So over uh, thirty years. Well, for thirty years I've been hearing it, but it, was, it wasn't until 2005 when I discovered the vineyard that I thought would do the right thing, and it wasn't until 2010 when I actually got the winemaker to agree to do it and then it took another 12 years before we actually did it so. but you'll show them i it's not a matter of proving a point it's a matter of trying to get people in the future to agree to do the same thing because i think what's happening in the world of riesling is that things are changing and we need to upgrade our thinking all right and again dan the documentary will be on netflix next year
0: <laughs> and it'll be uh, Produced uh, by Ken Burns and uh, narrated by our friend uh, Peter Coyote. Michael Moore has no chance. No.
1: <laughs> no. No. I don't see your documentary being handled by Michael. I, I don't think you want your documentary handled by Michael Moore. I didn't say that. Or we'll get the real inside story of what you've been talking about for the last two weeks. And you, you've been
0: doing a, uh, a wine judging called Dan Berger's International Wine and
2: Cider uh, competitions.
0: Mm-hmm. Talk quickly about well, that's, that. We that's got an outgrowth
2: minutes. of the old Riverside event. Um, we moved the event to Sonoma County in 2016. And uh, the reason that this wine competition exists is that I believe very strongly that winemakers are better judges than anybody else. And so most of my w- judges are winemakers and they're all close friends of mine. I got as opposed to winery owners or Yeah, winery owners they, they own, but they don't know necessarily the details. Sure, I mean course. I got I got Nick Goldschmidt and I got Carol Shelton and I got I got great people as judges. So Carol was just in the studio right. t- Tuesday. She was a judge at my competition this year. Yeah. Great, great lady. She's so what amazing. What does
1: 2023
2: hold for Dan Berger? A uh, couple of things. Number one is that we're looking at uh, changing, uh, a couple of friends of mine and I are thinking about changing how wine is being produced. And we're going to, we've got a strategy. We're not, we just talked about this afternoon for the first time. And he agreed. Once he agreed, it was at least in the discussion stage, and I talked to some people, financial people, about this, and I think we're going to try to change how wine is produced in the United States. Not too big of a, of a goal, is hey, it? No such thing as biting off too, more than you can chew, because the <laughs> worst you could do, just spit it out. <laughs> Fancy,
0: amazing stuff from our dear friend and drive Hall of Famer, Dan Berger. He's a co-host of California Wine Country with us for so many years. Every Wednesday in the 5 o'clock hour. And the story is amazing. We started it last week. We're wrapping today. And then, uh, again, the Ken Burns documentary, <laughs> Dan, uh, narrated by Peter Coyote, will uh, premiere next year.
1: And remember, this all started with him being a chess championship and in a quartet. Three bows and a peep.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that was last week. That is right.
2: The, ch- I, I, the chess stuff keeps on going. I, I, I looked believe. at
0: it today because we were going to recap some of last week, and I, I blew over that part.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I think it's an interesting path to see and and follow, you know, from from L.A., from journalism, from sports, to wine, to business, <laughs> to making your own wine. I think I think making your own wine is the natural conclusion folks would come to based yeah. on your career and your interests. And so by if, the way,
0: Ken Burns... Uh, called me this morning and said he wants full access for his cameras in your wine cellars. There we go.
2: <laughs> so yeah. You have no idea what's in the cellar. No. You know why? Because I don't either.
1: <laughs> Harry, weren't you there once? I have visited the cellar. As somebody said earlier, remember that last scene from uh, the first Indiana Jones movie when they take you to the warehouse and you just see cartons and cartons and cartons? That's Dan's wine cellar.
0: Dan Berger. God bless you, my friend. We'll see you on Wednesday.